Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You're listening to the Alive and Kicking podcast, which is aired on News Talk on Sunday mornings. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up, Dublin Frontrunners are Ireland's oldest LGBT plus running club, inviting gay men, women and their friends to stay active and have fun in the process. They currently have 250 members, with 60 identifying as women. Today, I'll be joined by Gillian and Mark to try and recruit some more. And why they say it's not just about running, it's about providing an inclusive space. Dr Karen Hessian is on a mission to help people rise up and find their voice, drawing on a wealth of training from music to creative arts, neuroscience and neurolinguistic programming. She's designed a coaching programme and workshop that's helped many, including senators for public speaking and some with speech impediments. She might even be getting me to sing a bar or two. And Sinead Hingston-Green was on the show a couple of years back to talk about grief. Having lost her husband, Jeff, when they were only seven months married and she was 17 weeks pregnant. She has since gone on to rebuild her life and her family with her husband, Michael, but they've experienced pregnancy loss along the way. She joins me to talk about why she's founded Spark a Life, because no life, no matter how short, should be forgotten. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I have news. I have completed my health coach course. I actually can't believe it as I say it. There was one last module, one last test, one last group coaching call and that's it. Now, I still need to wait a couple of weeks because the test is still open for others to take and then it will be graduation and certificate time. And I tell you all this not to brag, though I do think it's important to celebrate our wins in life. More on that later. But more to impart to you that we can do so much more than we think we can. And I first heard about the course a few years back from Miriam Hussey of Soul Space, who's been on the show many times. She started out as a pharmacist but felt disillusioned doling out the same prescriptions to the same patients for the same symptoms. So she decided to retrain in this more holistic view of health that works with medical professionals, not against, but leans into the more lifestyle changes we can make to impact our lives. And I asked her about what training she had done. I looked it up and then I just decided I didn't have the time and I couldn't afford it and I shelved it. Then my pal Georgie Crawford did the course and she gave me another nudge when I told her one day I was feeling stuck and the time and the money, I worked it out. When I went and looked into it, they have payment plans and I just found and made the time. And I know I spoke on the show about how when I started it, I just had such an urge to rush it. I lamented that I'd signed up for the year rather than the six month programme. And I was so eager to get it done and move on to the next thing and the next thing. But over time, I've slowed it down. I really enjoyed every part of the course and the year has gone by so fast. So once again, I've realised we are capable of so much more than we let ourselves believe. And we talk ourselves out of things that we should talk ourselves into sometimes. And speaking of wins, I've been reading Roxina Fusi's latest book and she was talking about her ex-partner and when they first got together, she was addicted to drugs and was constantly seeking the big highs in life. And she said we all mark the big highs as a society, the big promotion, the engagement, but sometimes we forget the small stuff. And her partner at the time, Wade, he didn't drink or take drugs and she couldn't believe how mesmerised he was by things like trees on a walk in the park and the very simple things in life. 
So she started to take a leaf out of his book to celebrate that first cup of tea in the morning, to feel really happy cooking a meal or really soak in being greeted with a hug by her son in the morning. And I think it's really important that we all do this. We celebrate the wins, big and small, to keep what she calls the drip feed of happiness and backing ourselves as we go. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Dublin frontrunners are Ireland's oldest LGBT plus running club, inviting gay men, women and their friends to stay active and have fun in the process. They are seeking new recruits and Gillian Callahan and Mark Armstrong from the frontrunners join me in studio now. Well, you're both very welcome. Gillian, I'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about the Dublin frontrunners. All right. Um, we're an LGBTQI plus sports club. Uh, we're a running club and we're based in the Phoenix Park. And we meet three times a week um, for runs and social events. And Mark, one of the first questions, and I don't mean it to be a challenging one, isn't the whole idea uh, that we should all be one big community all together? Why have a a special group to to single you out in this way? Yeah, I think it's very important um, to have an LGBT plus club um, to engage with our members. Some people aren't that comfortable running with, you know, um, other people. But if they see in sport, I think it's very hard to break down those barriers, um, you know, that they feel comfortable to be yourself, to be who you want to be. And the club is very much about you do you, you know, it's um, if you want to be, you know, it's flamboyant, as you know, um, if you want to wear short shorts, um, it's quite important that there's a safe space where they feel comfortable to be able to do that. You know, they could be um, not out at home. They could be just exploring their sexuality. So it's for LGBTQI plus and their friends. So it can be very daunting for them coming in. I've just taken over as chair um, at the end of January and we're hoping to roll out an ambassadors program. So that person is assigned to a new member that comes along and um, they hang out with that new member to show them everybody, introduce them to everyone, give them the roots for that day and um, kind of chaperone them to for breakfast after. It's one of the most daunting um, experience going out with like, you know, 90 people and then heading for breakfast. Uh, with, you know, there could be 50 going for breakfast and they're like, oh my God, I don't know anybody. You know, what are they going to say? So that um, ambassador would take them along the way and introduce to other members from a... Um, an athletics point of view, it's quite important that um, we bring people along a journey. Um, so we start off, we have a walking group so that might um, entice people to come in and see what it's all about. Uh, then we have a slow and gentle 5K. So one of our members takes those slow and gentle and, you know, stop, start, nice and easy pace. And then they might go on to a 5K run and that's a full loop of the set out route. And then there's a seven and a half and a 10K. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you remember joining the group for the first time, Gillian? Um, yeah, I joined in 2017. And as Mark is saying, it is quite dark joining such a big club but um, you know nobody ever um, lets you feel alone like they do mind you integrating Um, I used to see them training I used to see the pride colours and all that but you know I was just always just a little bit scared to join but then when I did it just literally changed my life Um, and that year I was awarded newcomer of the year um, it seems I made an impact on the club. Um, so I'm in the club six years and now this is my third year on the committee. You meet um, just all types of people, people who are out years and just to see them so confident then 
gives you the confidence and then that just has a knock-on effect in your personal life and your overall happiness. So I just say anybody like considering joining, like we really do cater for all running abilities. But if you have any kind of curiosity, just reach out. And we just run so many social events. We have a group WhatsApp. And you're looking for more girls to join. There's a, yeah. a, a there's a overwhelming group of, of men jogging and you oh. want to get it a little bit more even. Yeah, we're definitely trying to reach out to all the um, females in the community um, who identify as queer. Um, so last year we had 315 people on our books. Um, we reached um, 60 last year, 60 registered as females, um, whatever that means to you. Um, and that was the highest we've had so far. We were on 57 for a couple of years, but we got to 60 last year. This year we have registered 250 people and 40 of those are identify as female. So, yeah, I just think it's really important for women to keep up sports in adulthood. It's so good for your confidence. Um, there's just so many health benefits, socialising and sports. Yeah, and sometimes I wonder, um, and, and I don't want to say all, all women, and this is definitely going to be something that will affect men or however you identify, that people feel you have to look a certain way before you can start to do something to do with sports and exercise. And you don't, because if you're waiting until you have an athletic build, it might be something that's never genetically meant for you, or it might not be. That's not what the important thing is. Mm-hmm. The important thing is the, the community, isn't it? And getting out there. That's huge. Yeah, we we're trying to do a lot of work this year um, just in in gender minorities within their own club. And, you know, we always need to look further afield, you know, um, you know, game bisexual people, they're, you know, they have it very easy in, in terms of, you know, um, the way society perceives them now. But also there's a lot of people on the fringes that um, need some help and support, like trans and non-binary people that, um, you know, they could be going uh, through transition, um, you know, and they mightn't feel comfortable, you know, what you do when you run, you get in a pair of shorts and you get in a t-shirt. And it can be quite hard for people that are, going through so much in their own private lives um, and there needs to be a space for them to be able to enjoy sport and I think it's very important that um, we have that space for them and um, last year we had our um, we had a um, a 5k pride run so in the lead up to um, the pride parade the Dublin pride parade um, the week before on this year it's going to be the 16th of June and the week before we have a 5k race in the Phoenix Park and as part of that, uh, last year we had our first non-binary event. So as a category for um, for the run. So, you know, you've male, female, and then you've non-binary. And I think that's very important to show how society is progressing. So the message is that it's inclusive. We are very know. inclusive, yeah. All genders, however you identify, body inclusive, personality type <laughs> inclusive, come and feel welcome. Yeah. We are Ireland's largest LGBTQI plus sports club and we're very proud of that. And that's just testament to how fabulous the club is, if I do say so myself. <laughs> and where do people find out more information? OK, so we're at dublinfrontrunners.ie or um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're most active on Instagram. Um, just have a look and see what we're about. You can see the races that we take part in within Ireland and overseas 
you know, we organise events within our club and then within the community with other sports clubs. Great, because obviously this is going out across the country. So, you know, you're open to this going outside of, of Dublin and, and, and matching up around the yes. counties. Yeah, so the Frontrunners is across the world. It's an umbrella group, so international Frontrunners. So I can go to most major cities in the world and run with Frontrunners. So that's quite a huge part of um the front runners um, umbrellas such um so I was in Washington last year um wanted to meet people you know I was on my trip um for work and you just rock up to the front runners there Washington front runners hey I'm from Dublin front runners can I join you for a run and vice versa so we would have people coming from you know Canada or America or Europe that are like oh hey we're from Manchester front runners uh, we're in Dublin for the weekend can we run with you and um that's really important that from all over the world they can come and and run with us and the community is very accepting just on the we do a track training session on a Wednesday night um, and you know it's it's led by um, we have two coaches there that lead that and they're bringing us along the way in a journey to make us faster better and then we've it's called fit and fitter group so there's a space for everybody in that you know if you're just starting off on your journey and running um, and then the couch to 5k and then the Saturday runs is really it's a it, since I took over as chair in the end of January, it's really special to see those kind of 90 odd people on a Saturday just come to run and enjoy people of the same, you know, um, hobbies and um, interests. And uh, you have to remember that sometimes this can be one person's outlet for the whole week. Well, Gillian and Mark from the Dublin Frontrunners, thank you very much for coming on the programme. Thanks so much, Claire. Really Thanks for having it. us. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, Sinead Hingston Green was a guest on the show a couple of years back when we were talking about grief. Sinead became a widow after seven months of marriage and at 17 weeks pregnant. She has faced the unimaginable. She has gone on to rebuild her life and her family with her daughter Lily and with her husband Michael. They have added two more sons to the mix, but it hasn't been without losses along the way, inspiring her to set up Spark a Life. And she joins me in studio now. Well, you're very welcome back, Sinead. Thank you so much. I'm getting emotional even listening to that. I know. And I don't mean to summarise such massive parts of your life into just one little introduction, yeah. but I, I just wanted to remind people what you've gone through. And I was talking at the start of the show about how we need to celebrate ourselves and celebrate our wins I hope you tell yourself on a regular <laughs> basis how incredible you really are oh, well I try to sometimes but yeah it's you just have to keep going you know you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other so yeah and taking one step at a time Literally, and yeah. I summarised that experience because I think it's really worth noting as I said that you went through unimaginable grief and loss and in your darkest days, did you ever see yourself as you are now? God, no. Um, like, I was only 30 when all that happened and I was pregnant with Lily and, you know, you have your whole life mapped out in front of you. So when it's ripped out from under you, as suddenly as it was that day, I suppose you, you just kind of, there's a lot of darkness, you know, there's a lot of dark clouds. You have to make your way through it all slowly but surely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I never even imagined that I'd be lucky enough to, to meet somebody else, let alone be where I am today. So I'm, I don't know, I'm proud and I, I look back and I just, I it's 12 years this year since we lost Jeff and yeah, I, I honestly never imagined I'd be where I am today. But it hasn't been without more losses, unfortunately. So Michael and I, um, 
after we had Dylan in 2018, we decided it was actually the beginning of the lockdown year that we would try and add another little one to the mix um, and got pregnant very easily. But unfortunately, we, we suffered a loss in May. So it was just into lockdown. So we were still very much getting used to life at home and working from home and having the two kids at home. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, hiding in the bathroom and hiding the pain and the the crying and everything else. Um, and unfortunately, we went on to have another three after that. So we had three miscarriages um, after that one. So it, it just, it was a really tough year. 2020 was another, 2011 and 2020 were definitely my defining moment years in life. And do you think people underestimate the pain of pregnancy loss? I think it is so common that it is, it's kind of dismissed a little bit. I think, um, I think the maternity hospitals do an incredible job and they try as hard as they can to get you through it. But unfortunately, it is so common that, you know, I think... I think sometimes people are just numb to it. It's like, oh, you know, this happens to everybody. You know, everybody goes through miscarriage. This is normal. Um, whereas I was traumatised, you know. I had never, I, I didn't really know anybody. I think maybe one of my friends had had a miscarriage. And even now I look back and I didn't even know how huge it was for her at the time because I hadn't gone through it myself. Um, so, I mean, ultimately my my absolute goal would to see Ireland have an like a specialised hospital that just deals with, you know, pregnancy loss and miscarriage and infertility and totally separate to the maternity hospitals because for me it's two very very separate things but it's all thrown into the one hospital so you're walking through corridors with with babies left right and center and you're going through the unimaginable you know you've just lost your little baby you've just lost you know another little being that you had mapped their entire life out for them from the moment you get those two lines on the pregnancy test you know you're you're dreaming of what they're going to become um, so yeah, I do think it is, I think it's dismissed um, and I, I don't think people are given enough credit for getting through pregnancy loss because it's it's really horrific. It's a really dark, lonely place to be. And I think it's really brave of you to have shared all these experiences online because often women don't talk and that's their, their choice, absolutely, if, if somebody wants to deal yeah. with it privately. That's fine, but this kind of keeping everything quiet and, until twelve weeks often it is something that people go through silently, and 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 you might never know. And we seem to have almost a grading system for what we'll allow grief for. So the yeah. longer the pregnancy goes on, the more people are accepting of somebody's grief and sadness. Whereas, as you say. It's from that first moment of deciding to have a baby and getting a positive pregnancy test. There's so much wrapped up in that and there is a life there. You have so many hopes and dreams. And it's funny that you say that because I remember, you know, when Jeff died, we were only married seven months and it felt kind of the same when I had my first miscarriage because I was only about five and a half weeks when I started to bleed at home. Um, And it's immediate. You ring the hospital, but you're so early on and you're like, but I'm pregnant. But I have a baby in my tummy, you know, and it's almost like an immediate dismissal, you know, and they're just trying to say it's very early on, you know, that these things happen, unfortunately, scarily. It happens to a lot of people. But I do think in the last two years, there's been a definite shift in the conversation. I think more people are opening up about miscarriage. I think it's really helping you know, it's like the rebound effect. You know, you hear one person talking about it and you're like, oh my goodness, I went through something similar. 
and you have a conversation with somebody and you just feel less alone. And I think I think that's really what life is all about. It's just feeling less alone in the journey. You know, we're all in this together. So the more we support each other and help each other through it, the easier it is and the more enjoyable it becomes. Are we starting to talk more about the fathers or the partners in this, that it's not just the person carrying the baby that feels the loss? I definitely think so. Although I will admit I was very selfish in my grief. I I felt for the first one or two that it was all me and it was, you know, my body had failed me and my body had let me down like it had nothing to do with Michael. Um, And funnily, again, when we were having tests after our third miscarriage, um, I had about... I don't know how many bloods taken. I just felt like they drained my body and Michael had one little vial. And I remember going, how is that fair? Like they only needed to test you for this one little, little piece. Um, but I definitely, again, I think because it's more talked about now, I think there's definitely more conversation about the, the whole picture, you know, about the, the husbands and the partners that are involved as well. Lockdown was really tough for people because the partners weren't allowed in. So it was very separate and it was very almost one-sided that the women had to carry this alone and they had to carry the grief and they had to be strong when it's the last thing you want to be. Um, but yes, 100%, I do believe that it's 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 definitely shifting. And the more we talk about it, the more it will shift. And the more dads that, that come out and say how they were affected by it, you know, the more it's going to help other dads that feel very lonely in, in the experience. And it was through your sharing that the idea for a spark of life came about. And you used to refer to your pregnancies as as sparks or sparky. And I thought that was really special. When did it become what it is, what it is now? Um, So after the fourth miscarriage, I was done. I was, you know, I just didn't see kind of, I suppose, the point in trying again. Um, And it was actually Michael that said, look, let's just give it a couple of months and see how we feel. Let's just forget about it for now and then we'll we'll revisit in a couple of months. So in the March, um, we kind of knew that if we got pregnant by the April that we'd have a baby that same year. This was the whole mindset of like a December baby. Um, and we started lighting candles. It was it just became a bit of a ritual. So we were sitting at home and we said, right, from the beginning of the two-week wait, we'll, we'll light a candle. such an Irish thing, but we'll light a candle every night. Um, and as we're lighting the candle, we'll try and just envisage that little spark, you know, sparking inside me and then growing as the flame grows, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, And it became a bit of a thing and we found out we were pregnant in the April on Michael's birthday. Um, And every night we lit a candle together and we, you know, we just imagined this little being getting as big as this flame um, and just burning in there and kind of not going out. And I put it out on Instagram and I just couldn't get over the response that it got. It was incredible. Um, and people started doing it with me and I had kind of given it the nickname Sparker Life. So the pregnancy and the baby became sparky and it just became a bit of a thing and a bit of a movement almost that people were were joining me. And then I was getting messages from people saying, Sinead, I can't believe this, but, you know, we've been trying for two years and I started doing this candle thing with you and I'm pregnant. And then the messages were flooding in and there's a few of them on my highlights on Instagram, but just reading some of them back even now is just incredible to see just the hope that it brought people. You know, it kind of takes your focus away from the, it's almost like an obsession of trying to get pregnant and trying to end up with the baby. Um, and it just kind of brings you back to, you know, let, let's come back to what we had wanted at the beginning, you know, which is a baby and let's try and sit down together and, 
and spark a little life, I suppose. Um, and you did go on to have your second I son, did. which is incredible. Um, yeah. Another absolutely beautiful child. But your message is not that you have this magic candle that's going to no. make every pregnancy go full term. But it is bringing hope and it is allowing people, even if they're going to light that candle and sit and ruminate on the fact that maybe it's not going to work. It's just bringing something more positive. Many of your candles have gone on to give incredible amounts of money to some of the fertility and miscarriage clinics nationwide. And eventually you want Spark Life to be a hub for fertility yeah. and miscarriage, somewhere positive where people can go. Yeah, so the, the original Spark Life candles, the proceeds go to miscarriage and fertility clinics in Ireland. Um, and I have gone on to design a miscarriage candle as well um, called Little Sparks. So it's for all the little sparks that didn't get to stay. Um, and the box is kind of designed that you can keep your little scan photos in as well. Um, and then I also make bracelets, so gemstone bracelets for hope and love and peace. And, you know, just to just to, to bring you that bit of hope when it, it's just a really dark time. And it's to, to give you a little light in the darkness, I suppose, to describe it quite simply. Sinead, that's who you are. You're a light in the darkness. I can't <laughs> believe you have turned such tough events into a way to bring joy and hope to people. I think you're one of the most incredible people Thank you. I have ever met or come across online. People can find out more. Sparkalife.ie Sinead Hingston-Green, thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Dr. Karen Hessian is on a mission to help people rise up and find their voice, drawing on a wealth of training from music to creative arts, neuroscience to neurolinguistic programming. She's designed a coaching program and workshop that's helped many, including senators for public speaking and others with speech impediments. You're very welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you have a very interesting job title and it's a very interesting way you make your living. Explain it a little bit to people. Um, It's really interesting. I feel like I have done several careers or several parts of careers or several areas of study and I've pulled them all together um, in this one little box that we call uh, self-development through music. So what we do is we work um, essentially singing lessons. We work on the voice, but we do it in a way where we're looking at um, how the person is developing, how they're expressing themselves. And it's very much helping somebody find their voice and helping that to transfer into other areas of life as well. Because singing is not really just about singing. It's often very emotionally tied, uh, very ingrained in our in our psyche. Um, there's a lot of people who love to sing and there's a lot of people who are terrified of singing and often they are both the same person. And so we all have this draw for music, but we often um, say, oh, singing's for the other person. It's not really for us. But by exploring the voice and exploring um, what potential I suppose we have inside of us and what voice and sound we have inside us and also what voice that we're showing up with all the time, it really transfers into other areas of our life as well. So does that mean we could all be Beyonce if we just believed in ourselves, Or aren't there people who <laughs> just have a gift with singing more than others? Well, it's funny because we bring Beyonce up a lot. Beyonce isn't just Beyonce by herself. She's a whole team of people helping her be Beyonce. And so if you had a whole team of people helping you, like exactly those, you know, um, Strictly Come Dancing shows and all those shows that you see, they're excellent by the end of the series because they've worked on it with a whole team of coaches. And so anywhere we can give someone a whole team of coaches to tailor them into one particular avenue, yes, they can come up. They may not be exactly Beyonce, but they can be um, a Sasha Fierce version of themselves for sure. And um, 
So I always believe that everybody has a, a voice and everybody has a song. You just have to find your song and find your why for that song. And there's so many different styles and genres that can complement our instrument and so many different styles and genres that can help us to unlock the potential or the story that we have inside ourselves. So every time I work with a singer, we're looking at what is the story they're trying to tell, what is the why, and what's the stop that's stopping them from maybe accessing their voice in a particular way, from making a particular sound, from carrying a particular tune or melody. It's really interesting where we place our sound and what that might correspond with in other areas of our life. And when we start to break it down, it really becomes um, foolproof is what I always say, because sound has memory. And so how we uh, show up and produce sound is reflective on how we were brought up and the people that surrounded us. So your primary caregivers are a big influence on how you um, align or reject to values, your beliefs, your needs, um, how you often develop your needs and how you lean into certain areas or reject certain areas. And so a lot of that comes with your confidence and confidence is not a lack of ability. It's a lack of almost um, belief in yourself to show up or to follow through on something. And so depend on how your influences with your beliefs and your values and your past experiences and your how you approach decisions and how your carers approach decisions um, can also influence how you place your sound, how you use your voice, how you show up, how you make decisions. And um, yeah, it's, so it's all, all breaking it down, looking at what actually influences your voice in the first place. And if you grew up in a house that was filled with music, is that a more positive influence on your life now or is it not even about music alone? So um, it's interesting because uh, whether we realise it or not, we are actually music. So how we developed in the womb was down to um, the evolution of our, well, the vestibular system was the first thing in evolution and in or in history as well. And so it's the first thing that develops in the womb and that also plays a role in how we hear. Uh, and the hearing and music is also the last part to die. So whether we have a musical household or not, music is surrounding us everywhere. It's on the radio all the time. It's uh, the soundtrack that you listen to in the supermarkets, you know, that encourages us to buy. When we're in the cinema, it's a horror movie that encourages us to maybe be terrified of the movie. So music is there all the time. So whether we have a household that has music or a household that doesn't have music, generally it's there somewhere in some form or another. And because music is a part of us as we grow up in terms of how we develop in the womb is hearing our mother's heartbeat, which is music, and feeling her the movement through her pelvis, her locomotion, which is rhythm and beat, which is essentially music as well. And so even if we're not hearing music, the movements that we engage in are like walking, cycling, running, they're all beat based. And when we feel music or feel rhythm and beat, we hear music internally. They work on the same areas of the brain. So, yeah, it's great if you have a household that plays music because often you find a bit more confidence maybe to express musically. But often I find that um, when in the line of work that I do, uh, we have musicians and then we have singers and they're not the same. So we can have a musician that sings and we can have a singer that is finding their voice, but they're not the same and they don't speak the same language. And so it's really funny when we work, we just had a showcase in the Town Hall Theatre in Galway. And when we work on that event, uh, often I'm translating between musicians and singers because I know how terrified they are. And sometimes the language that musicians use um, is, is a much more logical language, especially if they have studied music because all that music and language itself comes from a logical side of the brain. Whereas as human beings, as we evolved in evolution as well, we were thought to express through sound. So sound is our first point of expression. And then you go to a singer and ask them to sing. 
And then there's all this emotion that they don't know what to do with. And so it becomes a little bit of an unraveling process, helping them understand who they are, what they are and what they have to say. So whether influ- or music is in the household um, doesn't almost benefit you as much. But I do feel that everybody should, and they do really in general anyways, engage in music or uh, lean into that that thing that they're drawn to. So if you're drawn to singing, don't feel like it's for somebody else. I think that if people have that urge inside them to sing, then they need to sing because that is a natural instinct. It's um, part of our biology. It's part of our makeup. And so it's a very strong instinct in us all. And it's something that's nice to express. I do always wonder who first started to sing. Like, why did we start to to sing? Do you think it was down to sort of that, that drum beat, that tribal coming together and then how did that begin to become the singing that we know today? Yeah, well, singing singing is expression. And so singing is an expression of emotion. That's what singing was originally. And it was a communal experience. It wasn't a solo experience. And so when you were a caveman and we were hunting for food or we got injured, um, certain like, um, so for men had to be quiet because they had to hunt, which kind of reflects a little bit of society now. And women had to uh, make lots of noise because they collected berries And so they had to scare away things. And so it's really reflective of our culture now that women often tend to be more chatty and men often tend to be much quieter. But um, we, when we got hit or when we got hurt, the same way if you rang up a friend on the phone, you'd know by their tone how they were feeling. And so uh, our expression was always through sound. The problem was, I suppose, you know, as everything advances and technology advances and as we evolved as, as a species, we developed a language. And then language we ended up with these words that took away uh, emotional expression and took away meaning. And so the biggest one I always say is lol. People say lol now instead of laughing. And it's just like they take away the almost the emotion because we have to um, show up. We have to um, uh, socially connect with people and often we have to hide how, what we're really feeling in order to deliver the job that we're supposed to do. Whether that is, you know... In your line of work, you couldn't particularly come in crying. It wouldn't often suit the role that you're trying to do, especially on the radio when you're speaking to people. There's an energy that you want to give out to people. And so we have to often suppress what we're really feeling on the inside. And so we do that in every walks of life and every areas of our, um, I suppose, our career and our home life and our family life. And so emotion got really uh, suppressed. And so part of singing, it starts to unravel that and to bring it forward again. And so really... um, I think that was probably our first thing. But when we look at singing as a, as a community experience, it's why choirs are still really popular and so important. The idea of singing together, that sense of belonging, being part of something. And then you have the opposite side of when we put a singer on the stage because of logistics and it was being more convenient. We now have a stage one side and an audience on the other. And so now the person on the stage feels like almost like the prey that they're being um the eyes are on them and then we get the anxiety or the stage fright. And often, pretty much all the time, if you ever uh, turn to one of our performances, I'll always get the, the singer or if we have the choir to engage with the audience to try and um, mesh or blur those lines between them versus us. And sometimes in life, we always look at it as a them versus us. But actually, we're all the same and we all have our own issues and insecurities. And when we start to speak about them and start to... Um, express them and and understand where our insecurities are, where the locks in our voice are coming from, uh, we really realise that we are all the same and we are all connected on a different level, on a different 
uh, scheme. So it can be very powerful. Yeah, and I I think any of us who've been at a concert or a festival where everybody's singing along or even when you've really enjoyed the performance that everyone's kind of whooping and cheering, like it really expresses how you're feeling. But societal expectations has made us hold that back in many ways. Like we don't keen at a funeral anymore. It would be seen as over the top, whereas this is the biggest grief you will ever experience. And it's a way of, of releasing that. But music is very much part of a of a funeral and very much yeah. part of, of, of a, a burial ceremony, however you choose to have it. Mm-hmm. So we still have a connection, but you're right, we suppress it a bit. But it's not just singers and musicians that you work with. I no. mean, you've worked with people that needed to speak in the Oireachtas to, to help them to truly find their voice. People who might be suffering a, a speech impediment that it, it's holding them back to, to kind of build up that, that confidence. Yeah. So it's really fascinating how we show up with our voice all the time. And so... Uh, in certain areas of your life, you might feel super confident here, for example. But if I put you on a stage to sing a solo, I'm pretty sure you'll have a few nerves, you know. And often at times when we're taken out of our environment or else that we meet a character in that environment who might throw us off. And the way that it throws us off is because music has memory. And this is the part that I love the most. Music has memory. And not only does music, like if you think about it when you were in school and you're learning poetry. I mean, you probably couldn't recite much poetry from school now, but you'll remember song lyrics from 20 years ago easily and you know you'll have them all off and you'll know what song is coming on the radio by the first like two or three notes because the beat has stimulated memory so sound stimulates memory but it also stimulates the emotion that was connected to that memory so if someone has Alzheimer's music is a great way to bring some memory back but also bring back the happy memories that were associated at that time so it's the same way when we explore um sound and go back to the sound that we heard or the sound that we were experiencing, how we um, present ourselves in our speaking life or in our in our, in our our singing life, but in, in our speaking life every day, it depends on the environment that we're in and the characters that we are uh, approach us, I suppose. And so sometimes a character might approach us that remind us of a certain time. Maybe they'll put us in a pecking order that we would have had in our household grown up. Maybe they'll put us, remind us of a character that we went to school with that wasn't so nice or maybe they'll remind us of a situation that we were in that was more vulnerable and so the voice starts to maybe wobble, it starts to shake, they start to make us doubt our own ability and so when we can help someone figure out who they are first before they meet any character, it really helps them in other situations then as well. So that's why we work on... um, I suppose public speaking as well as a big one or just people in their career in general and the amount of people have come back to me and they do one career and they just come for singing as a hobby and then suddenly they're like, I think I'm going to change my career because they weren't as super fulfilled as they thought they were in the role that they were in originally. And so it's amazing once you start to find people's voices, it unlocks a lot more. And part of the thing that I love that it unlocks is that our sense of identity and we have a sense of identity with our voice and you'll know when you meet people how their voice might change a lot and fluctuate a lot. And so a lot of the time our identity is built up on our beliefs and our values and our needs. And when we start to look at where they are comf- where they come from, and a lot of the time they're inherited and they aren't actually ours. And so if we have a thing that like, oh no, singing is for other people or this job interview is for somebody else or this position is for somebody else, I'm not like more co- confident enough for that. Often we look at what as, what is actually really saying, where is it really leading to and what is um, what are the beliefs and the values that are on our voice that are actually holding us back. Yeah, I went to an event before Christmas um, with the organisation Soul Space and I wish I could remember her name, but I'll never forget her singing. 
she had told herself that her singing days were over, that she couldn't sing anymore. Yeah. And she hadn't sang for nine years. And she came out and she sang Oh Holy Night. My in, favourite. <laughs> in, in operatic. And it was breathtaking. But it doesn't matter what I think or you think. It mattered what Absolutely. she thought. And for yeah. years she was saying, I can't. And she could. It wasn't even the truth. We tell ourselves these things. You're going to try out a little exercise on me, albeit that I'm quite happy with public speaking because I've done it so often and I'm only gagging to get on a West End stage and do jazz hands one of these days. There you go. (laughs) But give us an example of of something that might happen at a workshop of yours. And in fairness, your workshops take place over two days. You know, there's a big journey that people go on. So to ask you to do it in 30 seconds (laughs) is not ideal. Well, we had a just we had our two day event there in the Town Hall Theatre. It was called Born to Rise, and it's a great program because it's taken all these aspects of singing. And so, as I said, the one of the things that I love most is is that sound has memory. And so, you have your voice now. And if I asked you to sing, would you like to sing? Like not ideally. <laughs> like it's. Not, <laughs> I'm happy to interview you and you know read my introductions and all that side of things and speak from the heart. But as far as singing, I am of the opinion that that's for somebody else. I can hold a tune. I enjoy yeah. singing in the car, singing in the cha- in the shower. My dad was always a massive singer. Um, but as far as now on News Talk, it's not something I ever uh, thought I'd do. Would you like to try it though? Okay, so what and what do so I choose? You, just for a second, if you've any song that you like, I know the sweat starts to pour then. Any song that you like, maybe just give us two or three lines of it. Oh, why does this hurt so much? Like, why is, is my whole chest tightening? Yeah. So I bet your heart's probably racing yes. as well. And so your body's just going into like, oh my God, this is fight or flight. And so it's like, I need to run because I'm feeling unsafe. I'm put out of my comfort zone. Um, I'm feeling probably a bit anxious. And so your body is, your body wants to make us survive all the time. The problem with making us survive all the time is that it doesn't give us opportunity to grow. And that is the big thing. So things hold us back all the time. But actually, we're never going, if we keep doing the same things, we'll always end up in the same place. Yeah, and and I've gone on many of these wellness endeavours, getting into an ice bath, even getting into the sea, for God's sake. Every time you do it, you're like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then you go, oh my God, I did. And there's real power in learning in that. You're right. Okay, I'm going to choose a song that I used to sing as my party piece over the years as a child. And you're right, it's full of memories. I don't think there's many Irish people didn't listen to Woman's Heart on the way to school. Because it was massive. (laughs) The tape was just going over and back and over and back in my car. So I used to sing No Frontiers. So I'll give you two lines, but okay. I'm going to close my eyes because it makes the pain worse. (laughs) If life is a river and your heart is a boat and just like a water baby, baby, born to float. Will that do us? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Wow. And well done for being brave. <sighs> well, it was my idea that you might test something on me, so I knew I had to follow through. But this is huge. I mean, I had a look even on the testimonials on your site. Yeah. For somebody to find their voice like that and overcome self-confidence issues and sing and feel that sense of community. They go on to do amazing things. It sounds small, but it's huge. They do. They do. And just even listen to your voice there. So your speaking voice and your singing voice, there's a slight difference in them. Yes, it was a bit shaky, wasn't it? (laughs) No, that's okay. But there is a difference. And what we want to do is we want to have our singing voice aligned up to our speaking voice. And so that's a great way to tell us that something is misaligned in your body, in your values or in your 
um, in your confidence, in knowing in who you are. So every time there's a misalignment between her singing voice and her speaking voice, there's some misalignment somewhere in her body. And so if I asked you to pick uh, two primary carers in your life, and those people who are listening at home as well could do the same thing. So two people who influenced you growing up or were the main influences in your life growing up, could you name them? I'm going to say my mom and dad. Okay. So I'd like you to sing the next two lines again, right? And I'd like you to sing uh, it in your mum's voice. I'd like you to mimic your mum. If life is a river and your heart is a boat and just like a water baby, baby born to float. Okay, nice. Could you hear or feel a difference? Yeah, and my mum is quite quiet. She's quite reserved. She puts everyone else first. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to kind of reflect that and how she speaks. She does have an English accent. I decided not to give you that. <laughs> sing accents don't always come out and sing anyway, no, so that's okay. I I'd leave that out. might go a bit a governor and that wouldn't be a true representation. Yeah, so let's give you your dad's voice. If life is a river and your heart is a boat and just like a water baby, baby, born to float. How did that feel? Yeah, and you just kind of mimic the power that my dad had. He would sing anywhere yeah. um, and stand up anywhere and sing a song. So, yeah, and yeah. I always think it's sad that we don't do that as much. We don't come back from the pub and yeah. all kind of sing a song or, or sing as much because, you know, it is a nice way of bringing people together. So, yeah, he was a real one of them. Yeah. So what I would just pick out from your voice, your dad's voice was uh, really nice and strong. And actually, it was quite similar to your voice, except you had a little strain on your voice the first time. And I know they can say like, oh, well, I did a few times and then I feel more loosened up. I don't think that was it. I think there's an element of women having to fight for their voice. And so even been on the radio, even in your line of work, uh, for women to be heard puts a little bit more fight on people. And so I can hear a little tension. Your mum didn't have it, but she was quieter. And your dad was just here and present. But your voice was a little bit similar to your dad's, but had to have a little bit more fight in it. Would that relate? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, you know, often, as you say, in, in broadcast, people say, oh, I, you know, I don't really like listening to a female voice. And often the ones that do well, a bit like myself, have a deeper I was just going to say, when voice. I met you outside, I was like, her voice is in a different place. It's back and low. But I could also hear that you had quite a feminine part to it, but you were suppressing it. Um, I've just always spoken this way. I suppose I've never really given it that thought. You might have always had to fight. Absolute food for thought. <laughs> Karen, it's been fascinating. It is fascinating. The voice is so fascinating. It tells so much. Well, thank you very much thank for making for me, me sing. <laughs> People can find out more at KarenHessian.com and you'll see about Karen's upcoming workshops. She spells it with a C, KarenHessian.com. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming in. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. So that's it for Alive and Kicking. For this week, my thanks to all of my guests, to my producer Aoife Breen and to Hugo De Silva-Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.